You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 156, and the movie this week is 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. And joining me to talk about it, because amazingly he's never seen this before, is my friend Keith Hoyt. Keith, how did you never see this movie? It's one of those things where mom hated horror movies, and so this got a nope at the house, and then ADHD, I just, it's like, oh yeah, I should totally watch this, get busy with something else. By the time I get home, I can't remember what I was planning on doing. I mean, that is very on brand for you, uh, so yeah. I get that. Uh, it's just amazing that like one of us didn't tie you down to a to a chair and make you watch it at some point. Uh Honestly, it never came up in conversation. I mean, it's not like I—it's not like I was sitting there and said, "Hey, I've never seen Highlander before." Well, yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> that, that happens too. Um, that was how this whole thing got started, wasn't it? Kind of, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so yeah, uh, so you had never seen this before, but you're a fan of John Carpenter. You've seen other John Carpenter yeah. films. Oh yeah, like um, uh, I was on for another one of his movies. Uh oh! Actually, um, it was in the mouth of madness, and that's the one. Yes, interestingly, and we talked about it in that episode. That was kind of part three in what Carpenter, uh, sort of referred to, and fans have referred to as his apocalypse trilogy, um, which started with this movie. They're not; it's not a trilogy in a sense of like they're three tied in movies, but thematically. But then inspired. at World's End, Shaun of the Dead, and Hot Fuzz. In in a way, there's in a sense. there's a there's a thematic uh, tie between um, this movie, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and um, and In the Mouth of Madness, and that they deal with apocalyptic level stuff and the kind of end of the world scenarios, but in very different ways. Um, well, if you haven't done the third one yet, you've got yeah, that's another one you can throw me on for. Yeah, I haven't done that one yet. This is the second, no, third John Carpenter movie now that I've covered on here because I did In the Mouth of Madness and uh, Big Trouble in Little China. And um, both of those, I think, are fantastic movies. I do think that I would put this movie above them. And we'll kind of talk about Carpenter in a little bit and sort of where where these kind of fit in terms of like his body of work. Um, but I do think this one is a little bit better than those. Um, and I love both of those movies. Love, love, love both of those movies. There's just something about this one. This is like a great kind of small, um, small level, but big stakes movie and story. And it's, it is not, uh, it is a adaptation of a novella from 19, I believe 38 called who goes there. Um, and it is, yeah, and it was originally made into uh, a movie directed by Howard Hawks back in 19, I want to say it was 51, sometime in the 50s, called The Thing from Another World. Um, 
and that was a very kind of loose adaptation of the novella. Um, this, this version of it was, I think a little closer to what the novella had because there's a shape shifting and all of that. Um, and then there was also a video game actually that came out in 2000. Was it two? I want to say for the original Xbox, that is a continuation of this story and a 2011 movie that is a prequel to this um, and actually kind of gives the the story of the events of the Norwegian uh, outpost that begins this movie. So there's been a few yeah, things I was, based around I was around kind this. of wondering more about that Norwegian outpost. I realized time constraints kind of prevents them from going into it, but mm-hmm. it kind of would have been interesting to see it happen at the one base, make it to the other one. You know, get get it, make a movie where it's the events at the Norwegian base. The midpoint of the movie is is essentially the beginning of this one, and then it all happens again. Yeah, and that's basically what the 2011 thing did. Um, okay, I haven't seen that one either. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have not seen it, but I know enough about it to know that that's what the story was. Um, okay. And uh, I've also seen some clips from it. There's another thing we're going to talk about quite a bit are the uh, creature effects in this. And unfortunately, the 2011 version relied too heavily on CG to its detriment, but not I, I not would have just, to say so. Yeah, but it's not just a like, oh, they did everything CG. They're, they They actually paid for and had a lot of practical effects done in that movie that they then scrapped. Uh, and drew over oh. essentially with CG. Whole other whole other discussion to have at a different time, but well, practical effects just hold up better and longer. I mean, look at Jurassic Park and anything Henson related. Yeah, so let's talk about the effects in this because that's the first kind of the first layer that you get with this movie is visuals. It is a very visually. Um, I don't want to say challenging, but it kind of is in that like it it really puts a lot of grotesque imagery right in your face. It doesn't hide the creature um, at all uh, and in all sorts of different ways. The effects in this are just fantastic. Yeah, and the fact that they don't hide the creature is pretty well different from in the Mouth of Madness where you only barely see it a little bit at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. And and so this was uh, the head of the special effects department and the makeup department in that respect was Rob Botton, um, who was 22 years old at the time he started working on this. Mm. He had a department of, I want to say it was like 40 technicians and, and people working with him. Uh, Stan Winston did do a little bit of work on the dog creature okay. uh, because Rob Botton at that point um, – had nearly worked himself literally to death. He got hospitalized for exhaustion and I think pneumonia partially because he was working seven days a week for a year on this. Um, He just, Oh my. Yeah. He just went crazy with it, but that work shows on screen between him and all of his technicians and all the people that worked with him. They put so much time and effort into this. And the funny thing was, so this movie had, for a horror film in the early 80s, had a very large budget. It was $15 million to make this movie. Um, to give you an idea of how that stacks up to other horror films, 
Uh, this was 1982. Four years earlier, John Carpenter made Halloween for $325,000. So quite a big, uh, big difference there. Um, and at the time, Universal offered, I want to say they said like 200000 for the makeup effects. And the final part of the budget for that was somewhere roughly estimated around a million and a half dollars. So like 10% of the budget went to the makeup effects kind of shows, um, in a lot of ways because of just how, how much detail was put into them, how much work was put into them, the puppeteering, the crazy design, because if I, I have not read the novella all the way through, but I have read bits and pieces of it. And I, and, and with a book like that, when you're talking about these kind of, uh, like shape shifting, weird creatures, they really could just kind of do whatever they wanted, which made for just very interesting, very weird. Uh, I keep using the word grotesque, but that's kind of the only word I can think of to really try to describe amorphous. this. I would go amorphous. Amorphous too. Yes. Uh, that's a good one. Um, and, and just like, I, I really enjoyed how, you know, to keep using my word, how amorphous the creature was when it wasn't actively mimicking something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, because it literally had like no uh, no set sort of form. Uh, took whatever form it wanted, but then just would go crazy. And and the effects that they did, like the the shot of the dog thing that Winston's team uh, puppeteered, and I think they built, is crazy because that that puppet looks so good. And then when the face of it just splits open in fours. Oh yeah. Uh, the Parker. <laughs> Parker thing when his head splits open and it's got big teeth inside of it and like it's just crazy when when it when the thing uh bites the doctor's arms off so here's a cool one with the guy's stomach yep all right so one of the more memorable scenes in the movie um certainly one that gets burned into a lot of people's memories mine included you want you want to know the cool thing about how they made that scene is how so the uh the creature effect was like a hydraulic uh, mouth, essentially. And they had um, they had it set so that the actor playing Copper, the doctor, um, could, you know, uh, go like he was going to use a defibrillator and then they would open it up and his arms would go in. So they do that and then stop. And then they cut to a different angle and they had created fake arms up to the elbow, um, you know, like gelatin and all sorts of crazy stuff they got in a stunt performer that was a double amputee at the elbow on both arms and Uh. so he has those fake arms attached to him inside the machine so when it clamps closed and snaps those arms off he could pull back and have you know the bloody wounds and 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 flail around but then they went the extra level of they got a mask of the actor's face that played copper and put it on top of the stunt performer so that they could do a wide shot and it could still, I mean, if you're looking for it, it you can see it. that guy. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're staring at like, him, I you can tell, but it. right. Like, because you're, you're distracted for the first time. Like I'm, I'm watching the whole thing. I even looked at the guy's face like, Oh God, this guy's in pain. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, that, that is a face you can put on a mask is pain. Yep. And I didn't catch that. No, that's great. See, they and did I, a really good job with that. Yeah, and I love that kind of layer of detail because it allows for that wide shot to 
give you so much more because now you've got this crazy creature with the bit off arms sticking out of it. You've got a guy flailing around, missing both of his arms, and it still looks enough like the original actor to pass for it because there's so much else going on and you can frame it up to have your other actors seeing what's happening there. So from a visual standpoint, from a from a filmmaking standpoint, it's a more compelling shot than having everything done in close-ups. And obviously yeah. today you get away with being able to CG somebody's face onto another actor and that kind of stuff, which works really, really well. But given the budget and the time that they made this movie, obviously that's yeah, not a thing that could have done. available, it's just not going to be possible. And it looks good still today. And then... You know, then you get the next layer of it, which is the head falling off the table and turning into the head spider. Um, oh, yeah, with them kind of spidery, crabby legs. Yeah, it turns into like the head crab, head spider thing, and then the eye stalks, and it tries like, to this... scuttle away. And <laughs> there's um, so many. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not the best person for this, but I was kind of rooting for the head to to make an escape. <laughs> well, it's funny like, because oh, come on, that's creative. I gotta. He's gotta get away. <laughs> And and it's interesting because there's a very nihilistic tone to this, so I can kind of see where that would where that would happen for you, um, yeah. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm honest. Uh, but yeah, just just effect after effect, and it starts off pretty early. They don't, and and like I said earlier, they don't hide it either. There's yes, they use creative uh, lighting, and and when it first starts out, but they're not afraid to just show you the creature that they made, and just put it in front and center, lit up. And just go for it. And I, I appreciate that because I think while it's always the hardest thing to um, to get across on screen without it looking cheap or cheesy or like funny, when it's done right, which I think this was because of how much attention to detail they put into it, it can work. And and work really like the really spidery well. legs that they got to come out of things. Mm-hmm. I I was impressed by that because I'm like, where are these coming from? <laughs> yeah, but not for only some of these. It's like, you know, stopping and thinking about it. It's like, okay, so a lot of this has to come from underneath the thing, but still, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And like the the creature at the end where it's got uh, the somewhat human face and then the big like jaws coming off the side of it. And it's oh, just yeah. the thing that's just a complete amalgamation of everything it's touched. Yep. Um, even starting off with the dog and the fact that that dog creature, how weird and crazy it got before kind of sprouting arms and going up like it was going to jump out of the room. Um, I just, every, every, every visual effect in this, uh, just, just crushes it. They were going to have some stop motion and there's about two seconds of it that you actually get in the final film. Um, but originally like the, the climactic fight was going to be, uh, with a stop motion version of the creature and Carpenter didn't like it. So they scrapped that and they're better. Right. They're and better honestly, I'm, I'm glad they did. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the last time I st- the only time I can think of seeing something, a live action movie with good stop motion was what was it? Um, Empire Strikes Back, I think was the last one I saw that was good yeah. like that because they actually got the motion blur. Yeah, they use they use go motion 
Yep, they got some motion blur in there. It's hard. Uh, there's some. Yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, I'm not saying that I could do it better, but you know, <laughs> hats off to the guys who are doing it. I definitely oh, sure. enjoy movies that are entirely stop motion. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, when but when it's all stop motion, it fits better. It's not so jarring. It's not so disconnecting. Well, it's um, it's like it's like meshing uh, animation and live action together, right? I mean. Even right, not everything's going to pull off a who framed Roger rabbit. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's not an easy thing to do because you're taking something that is, uh, either two dimensional in animation or isn't there and is a miniature and you're trying to make it mesh with stuff that's really there. I mean, that's why it took so long for CG effects to really get to a point where like the better CG effects are the ones you don't notice. Um, right. You know, I talk about it a lot with like how much CG work Fincher puts into his movies and you would think, like, why would the movie Zodiac have all sorts of crazy dig- visual effects budget? Because there's all sorts of stuff he's doing in the background that you don't think of. And that's where right, like, matte cause... paintings work. This movie has a few amazing matte <clears throat> paintings. And they work because you frame them in such a way. Um, like that shot, there's a shot early on in the movie of the three guys walking up to the hole in the ice. Um, where you see where they took the block, the big block of ice out. And that's, uh, that's a matte painting, like all of that frame, except for where they're walking. And, uh, that hole cut out of the ice was on a back lot. And then they did a matte painting around all that, but it looks good. It looks believable. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I was beginning to wonder where they filmed this. Was this done on a lot or was this filmed on a location? So there is some location shooting. Um, some of the exteriors, the beginning of the movie, they they had a set in British Columbia that they used. That makes for sense. some of those. Uh, all the interiors are done on on sound stages. They were actually refrigerated sound stages. They were um, they had them down to like forty degrees uh, while uh, Fahrenheit while they were filming in L.A. Uh, you know when it's like a hundred degrees. That takes outside. something. Yeah. So. <laughs> They did that, um, and I think there was also a couple of exterior shots somewhere in Alaska. The the Alaska-British Columbia stuff was real close together, so they may have had two different sites for that. But, um, yeah, a lot of it was done on sound stages. I also like setting it at, in Antarctica um, because that allows for basically the beginning of the movie is the start of winter in Antarctica, and then the rest of the movie is at night because there's no sun down there in the winter. Yeah. In their window. Right, and that, that kind of leads to how this movie got chosen for tonight's uh, recording. Because <laughs> I had found a thing that apparently, and I, I still have to go through and fact check this, but apparently it's a tradition to watch this movie when the long night starts. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the a, stations down there. Yeah, I want to say I read that it was like a UK or a British, a British station or something. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, that it's, you, you sent me that link and then mentioned that you hadn't seen this movie. And I was like, well, we're fixing that because damn it. (laughs) Um, right. Yeah. So, okay. So the visual effects, I mean, just, just crush it. And they're, they are the first, they, they they are the, the initial most memorable thing about this movie, right? Cause you're, those are going to be burned into your brain and you're going to want to watch it again just to watch some of those scenes. I feel like. Oh, now, yeah. granted, and I, I really think that Antarctica was the better choice as opposed to Greenland or Northern Canada 
because otherwise this could have already spread. Oh yeah. The geographical location they chose, it's just there's no way for it to spread. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Um you know, let's grab a hold of some aquatic creatures and then we're in some trouble. Right. Well, it's already over at that point. If they get a, if they yeah. if that thing gets into the ocean, we're done. Um Yep. <laughs> So that that's your first thing, and uh, I definitely recommend watching it again. It sounds like you you liked it, so that's good. Yeah, um, I'm I'm definitely gonna, you know, I definitely when my son is old enough, when Buckshot's old enough, um, he's such a fan of Among Us, and there's no, which is essentially a spiritual successor to this movie. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, watching it, it's like wow, this is like you could. You could put this whole voice track to an Among Us game. <laughs> you really, really could. Um, and speaking of the voice track, the cast in this uh, oh, is Wilford really... Brimley, um, Kurt Russell, uh, and the guy I always mess up his name. It's either David Keith or Keith David. No, that one's Keith David. David Keith is the other guy. Okay. Um, David Keith was Matt Murdock's dad in the Ben Affleck uh, Daredevil. Keith David... Okay is the guy that beats the crap out of Roddy Roddy Piper and they live. That's how you, keep uh, <clears throat> that's how you get it straight. Or, or you can say Keith, Keith David. David is Admiral uh, Anderson. Yep. Mass Effect. Mass Effect. He's Goliath and Gargoyles. He's, mm-hmm. I mean, pick your, pick your project. He's, he's either done it live action video game, um, uh, voice role. It doesn't matter. The guys, this and this was his first feature film. Really? Yep. I'm glad I caught it then. And I've, he, I've always enjoyed his voice work, and it it it's recognizable. There's, oh yeah, just he's just got one of those voices. He's got one of those yeah. amazing, just silky smooth voices. He can do, he can be like Goliath is a is a character in Gargoyles he plays that's very honorable, but he can play sinister and get a lot more. He can add some gravel to his voice. He's funny. Um, oh, yeah. like his, his small role in some, there's something about Mary just cru- It kills me. He's so funny in that. He's got great comedic timing. Yeah. Sorry, I cut, I cut you off. You were, you were going to say something. No, no, no. I, and you, you know, the character that he voices, Goliath, very honorable, but you know, very still relatable to people. Whereas captain later on, Admiral Anderson in Mass Effect, very honorable, to the point, just your your brass military guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And and so still yeah. has some compassion, but you know, it's it's <laughs> different from Goliath enough. It is. It is. And that's the thing I like about him is he's just got a very uh, a varied long career. Um and to think that, you know, this was early on and this was his first kind of feature film is pretty impressive. Um Well he's been doing so well I guess he was doing it before the year I was born, but yeah, I'm that old. Uh huh. Oh, I know. I know. Um, Kurt Russell is R.J. McCready, uh, and this was the third time he and John Carpenter had worked together to this point. Um, they had done a TV movie uh, called Elvis and also Escape from New York, and then they did this mm, movie. I love that movie. Yeah, that was really good. Escape from New York is good stuff. So they had done that. They did this. Uh, they did Big Trouble in Little China together. Um, now, did Carpenter do Escape from L.A.? Yes, that was John Carpenter okay. as well. I also enjoyed that movie. 
I mean, I get it. It's not it's not going to get nominated for an Oscar, but I still loved that movie. I have uh, uh, a a fondness for Escape from L.A. in that I knew what it kind of was going into it, which was Escape from New York didn't need a sequel. Um, but Carpenter kind of just wanted to make one. It's very... It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's almost poking fun at himself and this type of movie that had right. uh, that he had kind of helped bring to a to a bigger audience, and then fifteen years later made another version of it, uh, or basically remade it. So, you know, it's yeah. it's not as good as Escape from New York on its face, but I have a fondness for Escape from L.A. Um, plus, it's got Steve Buscemi, it's got Pam Greer. And it's got um, uh, Paul? Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell's oh. in it too. So I mean, okay. You know, I, I thought wasn't. I could have. I could totally be wrong, but I thought RuPaul was in there too. No, you're thinking of Pam Greer's character. Probably. That's why. Like the, the, the entire character makes me think that. Yep, that's why. Um, but yeah, like this Kurt Russell in this. I think is really good. And here's one of the cool things I found out. So, uh, McCready. So there was stuff, um, early on kind of introducing all the characters and we don't really get that, right? We don't have like any kind of a, a scene where we just meet all the characters at once. Um, we're just sort of, they're all there. They're doing their thing. Um, but there was some backstory given to the character of RJ McCready that Carpenter and Kurt Russell had sort of worked on behind the scenes. And originally there was some, some dialogue and some stuff that kind of fleshed it out more and then they, they didn't really do it, but he's apparently they were uh, creating the character on him being a Vietnam war helicopter pilot who was now suffering from some PTSD and it made him kind of explains um, the hat that he was wearing though. Explains the hat, it explains a little bit of the paranoia that he's got. He's he's alcoholic now. He's kind of having some trouble with what I like about reading about this and hearing this from and this was from uh Carpenter and Russell talking about it was they didn't have to explain that in the movie, but it comes out in the performance and in the characterization of McCready. Um and it's why I think also him being a war vet at the time makes it easy for him to kind of step in and sort of be a little bit of a leader. Cause he's got some, I, you know, you can, you can believe that he spent some time maybe, um, running a platoon. Yeah. You Who don't knows? get to be a pilot. You don't get to be a pilot in the military unless you're bare minimum an officer. Yeah. Yep. I think Lieutenant is the lowest ranking pilot. I think so. I could be wrong. I'm not, I've not been in the military. So if I'm wrong, please don't hang me. <laughs> oh, and Phil Rood in the chat uh, explains uh, his familiarity with a flamethrower. Well, yeah. Warrant officers. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I just liked that little, again, that's one of those layers. It's one of those things that kind of adds to it when you read and you're like, okay, no, I can get that. It, it, there's even little things like his line, you know, I'm a real light sleeper child's like, He's got some paranoia and some of that PTSD. It also explains why he's awake all the time. He doesn't sleep because he suffers from insomnia, um, which is why he's awake at the beginning of the movie when the dog shows up. He's awake when the dogs all are freaking out in the kennel. He's the only one that hears it and he pulls Near the, the fire alarm. He's like, I turned my, the cat the the lights out in my shack when I left four days ago. Right. <laughs> yep. So 
I liked, uh, I mean, I love Kurt Russell in just about anything he's in. Like he's just always compelling. Um, he grew out that beard and that hair, which is just perfect for this, that ridiculous hat that he wears. I loved, um, I, I want a pair of the sunglasses he had though. Those are cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's more, um, uh, oh, what winter protective gear for snow blindness. Sure. Oh, totally. hundred percent. Uh, but I could use those cause I get snow blind <laughs> pretty easy. Um, and, and I also maybe might've peeked my face into Google real quick to, uh, check on what kind of firearms they were using because i noticed the like that rifle that they were firing from the helicopter mm -hmm. i noticed that was an h and k right away because well it's an h and k okay kind of a distinctive look mm -hmm. i'm like well i'm gonna i'm you know I, i'm watching a little bit i'm like okay that's a you know that's a colt detective and and i kind of stumbled uh on the shotgun it was an ithaca not a mossberg like i thought but Okay, but I thought okay. that was kind of neat. I it's just one of those things that I look at when I watch a movie because that one of it's a hobby and interest of mine. So. Sure, sure. Um, I think the only other ones they had were uh, the pistols, right? There was a revolver, two revolvers. Yep, that, like a thirty-eight special uh, and something else. Whatever uh, the uh, Colt Detective Special. That's and a Colt Trooper. And then they also had the the flamethrower and the incendiary grenades. Yeah. Um, Pretty late on weaponry, but that actually works to the movie's benefit. Well, not only that, but it makes sense, right? They're not going to need a bunch of weapons. It's not a military. Right. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a scientific research outpost. It's not a defensive position. Right. It's not a military operation. It's a scientific outpost with, you know, McCready being an ex-pilot in the military, he's just hired to be the pilot for these guys and get them around. That's why he's yeah. there. You know, Childs is there to work on the snow cats and the in the helicopters and kind of be a mechanic. Um, you had your. Cook. It also seems like he had some military experience just from the. Yeah, you know, the, he might have. <clears throat> um, the the sort of the guy that was running the place, Gary, um, he was. Uh, you could tell he was ex-military. They even kind of make a joke about that. Palmer calls him El Capitan. Uh, says, you know, I was waiting for when El Capitan would get to use his pop gun. Um, and you had uh, shot too. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was played by, and I am finding the name now. Hold on, um, <clears throat> where'd it go? Had it. Donald Moffat uh, played Gary, and he was almost played by Lee Van Cleef, who had worked with Carpenter the year before, or a couple years before, on Escape from New York. Uh, but I okay. liked I liked Gary quite a bit. Um, as a character, I thought that, that that actor was the right mixture of just a little bit on edge, but also kind of flabbergasted. Like when everything starts going down and they have the whole thing with Bennings where um, they they follow him outside and then they see his hands. And, of course, he's a thing. Um, and Gary just can't believe it. He's like, but I know Benning. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I've known him for 10 years. 10 years. Like he just can't he can't wrap his head around what's going on. Like none of them can. But he just had that perfect mix. And then for him to, like, when he pulls and the then, gun. And there again, you see McCready with with the soldier's mentality of, I, okay, yep, this is messed up. Process it later. Keep moving. Yep, exactly. 
Uh, you see Gary kind of start to start to lose a little bit after the the blood is found, uh, tampered with, and then Windows tries to run a uh, run and grab the shotgun because he's getting paranoid. Um, Windows played by Thomas G. Waits, um, and uh, I mentioned um, we mentioned Wilford Brimley uh, as Blair. Yeah, he was. He yeah, was. That was really interesting to see him going <laughs> ham with an axe, like. Yeah, I was not expecting. I, I didn't think I'd ever see that of Wilford Brimley. So, a couple of fun things about that uh, about him. Number one, he was I think the only cast member that didn't do the location shooting in British Columbia because of like scheduling conflicts. So, um, the outdoor stuff you never see Blair. Um, and it was also weird seeing him without the mustache. It was weird seeing him without the mustache. I will, I will, hundred percent agree with you on that. It just, uh, I always like every time I watch this, I, I have to remind myself it's Wolford Brimley. Uh, he um, was also the only one, uh, supposedly the only one who didn't get squeamish during like the autopsy scenes and stuff because he had, you know, actually done that and been a cowboy and like dealt with uh, animal animal parts before. Um, yeah. And how old do you think he was when he made this movie, by the way? Just just rough guess. Where, where would you put him based on what you just saw? I would say late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, he was like 40. I'm a bad judge of age. He was somewhere in his uh, in his middle to late 40s. Okay. Um, when he made this. So, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd be happy I pegged him a little bit lower than that. <laughs> and again, he doesn't have a ton of screen time, but what I liked about him was... He is, uh, he is the one who kind of figures out what the thing is. But because of the way this movie is, you're never quite sure exactly when he becomes the Blair thing. And that's to the movie's credit. Like, is he already taken over by the time he freaks out on the radio? Or is it after that and sometime when he's in the shack? And you never really know definitively um, which I, I do want to kind of dive into a little it bit more. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because if the thing if the thing is intelligent enough to mimic somebody and have conversations, then it would be smart enough to not destroy the radio so that they can have help come in, spread the thing. You would think so. Uh, and, and I yeah. kind of... Um... I kind maybe of that, agree with that, that, but it's or maybe that's what it want. Maybe that's what the thing wants you to think. Well, and that's the that's the brilliance of this movie uh, that I want to dive into uh, a little bit more is just the fact that we don't know, and what we don't know makes it much more effective. Um, because we don't know when, uh, for instance, Palmer, um, who's played by David Clennon, when he becomes a thing. We don't know when Norris, uh, played by Charles Hallahan becomes a thing we know that um they are mm-hmm. but we don't know when exactly it happened because the movie keeps you guessing even even so far as i love the scene by the way the best actor in the movie hands down uh jed the dog the dog oh, yeah. that half oh, wolf yeah. half malamute apparently and this is from carpenter carpenter said he was like it took that that shot of him going down the hallway was like four takes. Like the dog just nailed it. Wow. I guess the, it, Carpenter just raved about how good this dog was. But what I love about that shot is you're watching it this. It does kind of look like the dog is 
you know, reconnoiting or doing some reconnaissance yeah. on the little area. Oh, he 100% is. You With no dialogue and just a dog on screen, you, you get all of this information because you're already suspicious now at this point of the dog because this is after they've come yeah, back. Yeah, okay, there's a helicopter with a guy shooting a gun out the window <laughs> at a dog. Something's going on yeah. with this dog. And so then, then you get all this, and when he goes into that room and all you see is a silhouette, and then the, the silhouette turns and looks behind it, I, I saw that described once um, as the scene in every horror movie where a friend jump scares another friend just from the other's perspective, which I thought was hilarious. Um, but what I love about that scene is that's most likely either Norris or Palmer, but we don't know which one it is in part because the actor that was the silhouette was neither Norris or Palmer. They got somebody who wasn't one of the main cast members to shoot that that scene. So it looks huh. kind of like them, but not well, you exactly. Can't quite place. You can't quite place. It could be either one. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, by design from Carpenter to keep people guessing. Um, right. And I really, I, I just, oh, And you I still can't like be that. 100% certain that the thing did anything in there. Because it's still doing recon. It's still getting, you know, like, don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, is, is it smart enough to not overplay its hand? Is it, you know, what, you know, what's this thing got going on? Like, I don't think it was expecting flamethrowers. No, I don't think it was. I. The funny thing is, is we don't know even the intelligence level of the thing. Is it just acting on instinct and survival? Or is it plotting and planning? We're not really sure. And how much of it is how much thing is there? Mm-hmm. Like, how yeah. much of that intellect comes from what it's mimicking? You know, there's, there. I, it, it seems to. It seemed like there was more intellect than you would find in your normal dog, but how much so? And even when it was doing the people, it did it well enough that they couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. Right. The actual people couldn't tell. Yeah. Yep. And that, that again is, is what works. Like the only character we really definitively see get taken by the thing is Bennings because windows goes to get the keys. He comes back into the room. He sees Bennings body being torn, you know, wrapped up by the, by the tentacles and all of that. And then, well, then there's, then and then there's he runs out. Well, no, the doctor never becomes a thing. He just gets his arms bitten off. Mm. And then he dies. But when they did his blood test, it came back negative when they did the hot hot wire test. Um, because the arms got eight and that left on him. Yeah. And then there's even like uh, the, the, the scene with the hot wire test when he does um, Clark, played by Richard Mazur. Um, and you find out that Clark wasn't taken over by the thing. And McCready shot him in the head anyway. He did try to rush a guy with a gun. He did. He did. And that's, again, the brilliance of this movie is now Now we're adding that, that sole bit right there. Now we're right adding there. that human cost. Yeah. That sole moment right there of, of Clark lunging at him and McCready responding by turning and just shooting him in the head, and that's it. It's over. That adds another layer onto this because now not only do you have we don't know who the thing is, but now you've got added on there like we can't trust each other just just on a normal level. And so, yeah, it just, it just makes things like it, it adds to it. 
Um, and it's a bummer because, you know, obviously McCready wouldn't want to do that, but that was survival. He wasn't taking any no. chances at all. And by that point, he's kind of figured out what at least somewhat what they're dealing with in terms of stakes and they can't let it get out. Um, right. Also back to that blood test scene, mm -hmm. like when he, when he hits it with that hot wire and it reacts and he drops it. Yeah. He goes to the shot on the floor where there's the blood, you know, on the floor. And then it's like the blood just runs to the side to escape. Yeah. You know, obviously they had some kind of tilting, you know, table thing. Sure. That they shot that on, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the blood's there. Okay. Now we tip the table and it all, it looks like it's going this way, but the can you know, the camera's fixed to the table in such a way that you don't see any move, you know? Sure. Yep. Yep. The floor seems to stay in place. Oh yeah. I thought that was a, I thought that was a really good move right there. And it's just, it, it's a, seemed like it could have been a very simple to build, um, little piece, but it worked wonders for what they were doing. Yeah. Yep. It, it just, it's, it's one more of those moments in this movie that you're just like, Oh wow. Uh, and then, and then they cut directly from that to that crazy prosthetic thing. Um, that was Palmer splitting open and then grabbing the guy by the head and start flipping him around. And yeah, it looks silly it a little windows, bit. Yeah. Like this, but, but at the same the thing has no rules as to how it's going to attack. Right. And, and, and not only that, but sure it can look silly, but it's also effective because there's screaming and yelling going on and McCready can't get the yeah. thing to fire. And you've got two guys that are tied to a chair and so they can't you get got away. Falling glass from the lamp that gets whacked with the guy that's being swung around like a nunchuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Windows, Windows was getting swung around like a nunchuck. Yeah. Oh, by the way. <laughs> so I love to point out dumb IMDb trivia. Um, yes. And one of them was. Uh, I'll see if I can remember it now because I didn't copy it, but it was like uh, two characters in this movie are called Mac uh, and Windows. But it has nothing to do with Apple and Microsoft computers, blah blah blah. And I'm like, yeah, because this well, movie this movie well, came out Jeff three Lizard, years before. This movie came out three years before Windows was a thing. Yeah, but what about Chess Wizard? <laughs> true, mm -hmm. true. Um, but I just I had to mention that one because I'm like, yes, of course it has nothing to do with that because uh, I don't think I don't think Macintosh existed either. But I know Windows didn't because Windows was 1985 was the first version. So, I know that Windows came after Apple. Yeah, um, but I but, don't know about Mac. You know Macintosh. I think Macs were uh, like 83, 84. I think was when they first started coming about. 84. Okay, fair. Well, if you watch that Ashton Kutcher movie yeah. about Steve Jobs, then you'll it'll should tell you accurately. I mean, I could, but I won't. Um, that's fair. I haven't seen that one either. <laughs> uh, oh, I didn't mention, um, I mentioned Richard Mazur. I did not rent mention, uh, TK Carter as Knowles, um, the cook. Uh, he was, you know, again, no, nobody has like roller skating around the, the little base. There wasn't a whole lot of room, but you could tell he took the time to clear the aisleways enough to be able to do that just so they didn't go bonkers there. Sure. And actually I like the fact that he roller skated around. That's just a cool thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, that um, was awesome. Richard, hey, can you turn that music down. I'm trying to sleep. I got shot today. Sure thing. <laughs> uh, nope. 
Nope. Doesn't turn it down. Um, keep. I mean, look, it's Stevie Wonder. I'm not turning that down either. Right. Let me, let me keep listening to Superstition. Um, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper. Uh, I didn't mention him either. My favorite thing about Copper, uh, aside from the fact that I just like the character overall, is his nose ring. It just, I yeah. don't know what it is about that. It's just, it's such a subtle thing. I never really noticed it till a few years ago. Uh, when I, I noticed, I noticed it uh, when I was watching. Yeah. But it, that's, that's the sort of thing that my mind will just like, there, there, there's a thing right there. There well, it is. I think the reason that I didn't notice it when I was younger was just, it's so subtle on his face. And I was watching mm-hmm. it on old TVs, old VHS copies. Mm, so yeah. I just didn't, yeah, I never it noticed it. Until like I saw don't it. show up so well in 480i. No, I finally, I think when I saw it on DVD for the first time, I was like, that dude's got a nose ring. That's weird. And it also is just different. It's not something you would expect it uh, out of, you know, this time frame. Sort of like, yeah, sort of like how with uh, Net, Back to Nightmare Before Christmas, I didn't realize that Zero's nose was a pumpkin until I saw it in 720p. <laughs> Exactly. It's amazing what a little added resolution can resolution, do. Resolution, yeah. Um, one, so I, I've talked about the paranoia of this movie, and that's its strong point, right? Because, again, you don't know when certain characters did become things or, or you know, was... Uh, like, you can't watch this movie without trying to puzzle it out. Right, but also there's the added layer of paranoia, as we mentioned with, um, you know, him shooting Clark, but also... When they find the blood, uh, the blood stores, and they're all ruined, who did that? We don't know. Well, the only people with keys are Gary, and and Dr. Copper gets the keys from him. But they're both immediately like, well, I just give it to Copper. And then Copper's like, yeah, I use it, and then I give it right back to you. So they're already immediately pointing fingers at each other. And you get windows. You never do figure out how they got that thing op- unlocked, open, and relocked. Right. The only thing that I can think of is it had to have happened somewhere between when Windows had the keys. So Windows goes, gets the keys from Gary, uh, and then comes back and finds Benning, Bennings, and then that whole scene takes place. So somewhere between that and when they find things in the the refrigerator is is when... I guess Norris or Palmer must have been a thing by that point, whichever one uh, the dog changed. And then they must have done it and then gotten the keys back to Gary. But, like, we never saw that. So now as a, as a viewer, you're kind of piecing these things together, right? You're trying to figure everything out. And then we, we don't know when it happened to Blair. Um, was it before or after uh, he freaked out? And then if it was after... How long after when he was put in the hut before, like when he I'm took? Pretty the... sure that it. Ha- I'm pretty sure it happened after the discovery. Mm-hmm. And, and that that much is almost certain. Right, but then almost. Are you talking but... the discovery, like where they discovered the? No, uh... no, his, his discovery, like his discovery, sitting there at the computer figuring oh, out how right. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His personal discovery, and how do you tell everybody this and then be able to pull off destroying it? Right. Uh, but then like we see him taking parts or doing something to the helicopter, but is that Blair doing sabotaging the helicopter so no one can get away? Or is that Blair thing 
either sabotaging the helicopter so no one else can get away or taking parts off of it because then we later find that he was building a ship in the underneath that hut like there's all sorts of stuff going on and you just you're trying to piece it together um you know the end the ending is super ambiguous i want to get to that here uh very soon but like at one point we don't know if macready uh is or isn't a thing because Nalls comes back saying hey we found his clothes all torn up and that's been a sign um torn clothing because didn't, when didn't the um the guy the guy with the glasses Fuchs. burned up in the snow Fuchs. yes um he found a McCready jacket that was torn up he did before the blood test thing and he and he still came back well so he did and so he, so he's when when Fuchs is working in his lab McCready comes mm-hmm. in to see him and checks on him and then he leaves and that's when the power goes out Fuchs goes outside during the pot well, after the power's been out something runs past him yep and that's when he finds the jacket with McCready's name on it and then we cut away and the next time we come back to that we it's his body burned so we don't know Again, you don't know who was. Is it is it Norris? Is it Palmer? Is it Blair that did this to him? Did one of them attack him and he burned himself so he didn't turn, or did they burn him? Like we don't know. Um. So, which which I like. I like the fact that we don't know, um, because it just right. makes it makes it more compelling. It makes it more interesting. Including but then even after even after finding that shredded McCready coat. McCready's blood thing still comes up not thing right yeah and so that's the only time in the movie really where we definitively know who's who and who's what um, is that moment but even up till then you're thinking oh shredded clothes McCready's got to be one of them and then he comes back as not one of them and you're like yeah what do I actually know about this movie Right. I mean, we don't know. Like, we're assuming Clark might have been one of them, and then he turns out not to be. Like, nobody is except for Palmer at that point. Um, right. And, and Clark would have totally made sense because he was alone with the dog for over an hour. Yeah. Yep. And again, the movie plants that seed between Blair's reaction to him and then Blair telling McCready when they put him out in the in the shack, like, hey, watch Clark. Pay attention to Clark. Um, so there's just all sorts of cool stuff. and then And then the ending. So the ending is very ambiguous, right? Because McCready's figured out we got to blow everything up. And so they he lit- literally blows up basically the entire base. Um, and we assume he's blown up the thing at that point, right? And so now you got McCready. That, that is the, the assumption the movie gives you, yes. Yeah. So here's McCready, and he's got no shelter left and uh, wrapped up in a bottle blanket. bottle of whiskey. Here comes Childs, and he's got a flamethrower, and they're sitting there, and they're trying to figure, you know, they're they're still puzzling it out between each other, and then it's kind of like, well, let's just let's figure it out later. Let's get let's get some rest. Well, what I so here's the cool thing about that for me: Childs disappeared, right? Uh, mm-hmm. When everything went down, Childs disappeared. We don't see him again, so he doesn't show back up until after everything's gone down. So, in your opinion, after watching this movie for the first time at the end, do you think one or both or either of them were a thing or human or kind of what's your, what's your feeling on how this ended? I'm curious to know yours and then I have some, some I'm, theories. I'm really loving the fact that I don't know. 
All right, so like, I'm gonna, I'll put I you on the just, spot. If you got a guess, if you got a guess, you got Kurt Russell, guess, you got McCready, and you got Childs. Is is McCready? I'm going to say Childs is a thing, and McCready might still be human. Okay. So, again, we don't know now. Some people will say he runs off into that storm. That's not an environment where you get lost in a storm and make your way back. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there, there is, according to the video game, which, if you want to take that as canon, and uh, I guess officially it is, they were both human and they both froze to death. Um, but that's the video game. Uh, if you go just by this movie, John Carpenter has said, and I quote, one of them is a thing. And that's all he's ever said. Um, and what I like about it is there's a few different ways you can interpret that. So McCready gives Childs the bottle of scotch, who Childs then takes a drink of it, and you get a little smirk and kind of a laugh from McCready. And then he says, well, let's just stay here and, and see what happens. And then the movie fades to black, right? That's the end. What's cool about that is you can interpret that in many different ways. So if you, yeah. th- if you think, okay, okay so run Cell with me transfer. On yeah. Yep. Cell, you know, biological matter transfer from the bottle. Yep. You know, child's that could do it. Yep. So or child's got to become, got to be a thing when he was out there. But, um, I think that still more points at child, at child's being the thing, because he said one of them is the thing. He did is a thing, and if that if that fluid transfer happens, then they would both be thing. Because we do see McCready drink from that bottle. No, we don't. We don't. He starts like he's going to drink from it, but he doesn't drink from it at the end. And then he hands I thought he it to did Childs. on the walk up to the to the building. No, no, it, it gets close, but he never actually drinks out of it because there's there's different there's differing theories. So one theory is that um, is that McCready is a thing, and the smirk is him realizing that he's just infected Childs um, because he handed him the bottle, and they both end up as things at the end of it, and they're going to get stuck in the ice and whatever. And that's why he's smirking, right? Because he's like, ha-ha, I've done it. I've, I've made it. Um, the other theory is that McCready isn't and Childs is. And what gives Childs away and what makes McCready smirk and laugh is that he handed him a bottle that was topped off with kerosene and wasn't just scotch because he'd been making Molotov cocktails earlier. Oh, and and the fact that he handed him the bottle and he drank out of it and didn't react tells McCready he is a thing and McCready feels like, okay, I think I've probably figured it out in one uh, type of deal or at least slowed him down. Um, but there's another one and this one I just learned about and it's one that I want to I wanna research more and I want to watch the movie again and pay attention to. This is from Dean Cudney who was the director of photography for the movie. So again, little grain of salt, but, but he had said that one of the things they did in the movie was eye lighting in such a way that they lit so that everybody had a very, uh, distinctive shine to their eyes with the eye light. Okay. Except for when characters were the thing. 
and then they would be lit in shots where you didn't see that same reflective eye light. And I want to go back and watch and kind of pay attention more to that and see characters that we know become the thing, like Norris and Palmer and Blair. Right. Because but the, then when we get to the end, they're definitely lit differently in that last scene than any other time in the movie. They are, but if you watch that scene again, Kurt Russell has the shining eye light, and you can see that point of light, and um, and Keith David does not. So if that theory holds true, then it would make sense that Keith David is uh, is the thing at the end of the movie. But either way, what I love about it is we can have this conversation. We can look at all these different theories, and it's like, most People of never truly know. Yeah, most of what I've read and heard discussed about uh, McCready being a thing at the end has to take a few more leaps in logic and a few more stretches. Whereas, um, most of what I've uh, m- most of it that talks about Childs being a thing is makes a little bit more sense. Like he just sort of shows up at the end out of nowhere. Uh, and yeah, they talk about well, his jacket's different, and obviously, if he'd been turned into a thing. The jacket would have been all ripped up. Um, You'd need a new jacket, yeah, because you don't just show up right. naked in that. <laughs> no. No, you don't. Plus, some people have and, talked about, oh, well, MacReady's got like his bre- his breath, and you can see his breath, but you don't see child's breath. Well, that is more of a lighting thing and the way that the the they're looking towards each other. So I don't buy that one as much. Phil brings up a good point. There was an ending that answered it, and there was a more definitive ending. They shot a bunch of different endings for this. Um, there was a, Oh yeah. I mean, I wanna... that's that way. If they're, you know, if you got like a Tom Holland on the set, you know, something <laughs> is blabbed. Tom well, Holland's great. Don't get me wrong, but you know, he's, he's seen tweets about leaks. He's like, Oh my God, did I do that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they had like uh they had an ending where they get rescued. They had an ending where another team shows up and they're both frozen and, and kind of all sorts of different stuff. Um, I'm glad they went, ended up going with the ending that they did, though, because I think what it does is it makes it makes this movie feel a little bit like um, the ending of like a Twilight Zone episode, where you're you're just not quite sure, like you're left guessing. The movie's about paranoia, and to be left without a definitive answer really is the capstone on that one. Yes. And that's what I like. I like that there is no answer. I like that we have the two characters, and Phil brings this up too, um, where they don't trust each other. And really, MacReady and Childs throughout the movie have butted heads a little bit. Not not a ton. It's not a super antagonistic, but it's a bunch of guys. So there's testosterone levels, and there's a bunch of you know, there's a bunch of dick waving going on, and 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 that happens. But what I liked about it was especially when you break out the flamethrowers. Exactly. Right. Who's got the bigger flamethrower? Well, um, but uh, what I like is that they're somewhat antagonistic, so they just don't trust each other anyway. And then it's made, it's heightened by, well, maybe one of them is a thing, maybe one of them isn't. They don't know. And so I just love this idea of like, McCready's just like, why don't we just wait and see what happens? And that's it. And so we're left to assume, yeah, they probably both freeze to death, but we don't know. You know, maybe one of you them is know. the thing and he'll survive. Who knows? Like, I just love. Maybe you you don't know if one of them waited for the other to fall asleep and either, you know, either yeah. the thing, you know, either the thing falls asleep first and McCready gets the jump on him or McCready falls asleep first and the thing finishes the job. Yeah. Yep. Either and way. Even with, even 
from Carpenter saying one of them is a thing. And look, I mean, it's it's you, Carpenter. You still so... don't know how it resolves. You don't know if they both freeze. You don't know if one of them gets the drop on the other. You don't know. You don't know which one does what. Sure. And 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 I being... like that about him in a movie about paranoia. Yeah, and it being John Carpenter, he could be trolling people by saying that too. The complete. Oh yeah. It's it's oh, yeah. not it's not out of the realm of possibility for John Carpenter to be like, yeah, sure, one of them's a thing, and just and just like to they... get these conversations like what we're having going, because um, I could totally see him doing that. There is a comic that continues the story Faye mentions, and that is true, um, but I like to think of this movie kind of in its own world. There is the the prequel slash remake, The Thing twenty eleven, which leads up to this, um, but I just. I also did think that it was funny that uh, McCready kept calling them Swedes at first. Yeah, that was that was they're weird. Norwegian. Um, I think just overall, like the the fact that they were able to do this movie and make it ambiguous like that, it, it's so much better for it. And my, you know, I don't know that a a movie made in a different era could have gotten away with being this nihilistic. Now, look, this movie, one of the problems that this movie had was it was eviscerated by critics. Critics did not like this movie. Audiences didn't care about this movie. Um, the, the movie made, I want to say it was $19 million at the box office off a $15 million budget. So it was not a hit whatsoever. It released the same day as Blade Runner in 1982, um, which was also a commercial okay. failure. Um, part of the reason though, and it's unfortunate for those two movies is 1982, uh, there was another movie that came out that year. You might've heard of it. It was called ET, the extraterrestrial. Huh. Uh, that kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Like nothing was. Yeah, it really did. And for that movie to come out and then this came out after it and it's got aliens and the marketing had aliens involved in it and it is not the same movie at all. Um, no. So it's kind of one of those things. Well, that, yeah, that was a tough act to follow. But how, I mean, there's also how long do you wait to, to try, you know, test these waters again? You know, there's, you don't know how long you can wait. Yeah. But well, how long, how long after Jurassic Park was it before there was another dinosaur movie? How soon was too soon? Sure. Sure. But it's what's part of it too. Like horror movies, especially um, at the time that this came out, horror movies were not well received by critics. There's been a shift away from just oh, it's a horror movie, so it's obviously bad. Um, to uh, to kind of you know appreciating that more, but at this time, like that just wasn't a thing. Now, audiences and and critics alike both have come around on it, and a lot of people name this as one of the better horror movies ever made. Um, I have know, to say so, yeah. Fans fans love it, all that kind of stuff. The most interesting critic thing, though, I had to, I had to do this because uh, I remember watching Siskel and Ebert uh, when I was a kid. And Ebert called this, at the time, a barf bag movie. He said that it was uh, inferior to earlier genre entries like Alien, blah, blah, blah. He didn't like it. Siskel, however praise the atmosphere of fear and paranoia. And the the cool thing about that is that's a reversal. Usually Gene Siskel did not like movies like this. 
So for him to, to notice that kind of paranoia and the fear and all that stuff that they were doing in this movie and seeing beyond just the gross-out gore effects, um, I thought was kind of neat because, again, it's not... Like, normally that, that first layer would have been enough to put him off and he wouldn't have cared um, like a lot of critics did. But he kind of saw through that and he was a little bit ahead of the curve there because, like I say, eventually critics did come around on it and they they praised it quite a bit more in the intervening years and home video helped the movie out a lot, gained a cult following Carpenter does that a lot though. His movies don't always do well. Um, with the exception of Halloween, but once they get home, you know, once you can get it at home, then people are like, yeah, you know, I'll watch this. And then they just watch the crap. Yeah. Uh, Carpenter has called this one possibly his favorite movie that he's made. Um, you know, varying accounts I can see that. of that, but I could definitely see where that would fall in. You know, and this is coming off of he had done um, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, and Escape from L.A. by this point. Um, so he was kind of really Didn't hitting his Didn't they do stride. a remake of uh, Assault on Precinct 13? Yes, there was a, a new one from a couple years ago. Okay. Uh, Phil, yes, Ebert did re-review the thing, and he did give it more praise down the line. Um as a lot of critics did. So it, it, it definitely deserves that. It deserves it on a, on so many layer, uh, so many levels too. Um, and that's what I think has made this endure is this movie is 40 years old. And not only does it still look good, it, uh, it has interesting themes. You mentioned among us, like I never really made that connection, but it makes perfect sense. And then on top of that, the practical effects just aged very well. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, like I said, my it's one of my son's obsessions, so I hear <laughs> all about it. And he draws me all kinds of pictures. Honestly, they're getting really good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> might have a little uh, sprite designer on my hands here. But, uh, you know, his, his obsession with this game, you know, as is typical for a kid his age. Um, you know, it, I, I'm watching this and... I'm like, come on, just say that somebody's being sus, dude. That's all you got to do. <laughs> all I got to do is just drop one single sus, even if it's somebody starting to say suspicious and then gets cacked, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so I mentioned this earlier. I want to I wanna circle back to it. Uh, okay. Of the John Carpenter films that you have seen, because I know mm-hmm. you haven't seen everything he's done, where where would this fit? Would this be towards the top for you? Is this one of his better ones? Yeah, this is honestly. I don't think I've disliked a John Carpenter movie I've seen. I mean, um, that that's me. But that's also um, I don't always remember who directed what. You know the the Escape movies. Loved both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Trouble, Little China. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Um, this one, great movie. Mouth of Madness. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, what are, what are some other movies that he's done? Uh, just well, to Halloween, jack my memory here. Uh, I liked that one. Uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, uh, Ghosts of Mars, uh, Prince of Darkness, Village of the Damned, Starman. Um, I don't think you've seen some of those. Uh, not, I looked... Not, some yeah. of them, no. Yeah, I, I, but put, yeah, I, I, 
Okay. Pretty much from what I've seen of Carpenter, he doesn't do bad stuff. I mean, it's it's to say that this this is definitely on the upper end of it. Mm-hmm. He, but I can't say that there's one that I've seen of his that I even disliked, let alone hated. Yeah, I have not seen anything of his that I have disliked um, at all, uh, and. Now, granted, I have not watched Ghosts of Mars, um, which and and part of that is because I heard it's really bad. Uh, but I still kind of want to see it just to kind of complete the set. Right. Um, you know but, that might be one for us to both watch and then do a show about. Could be. Could like, be. Hey, definitely. neither of us have seen this. Here we go. <laughs> um, but I this is in his his kind of. Um, the Mount Rushmore, the podium for for me mm-hmm. for John Carpenter is the thing. Look, Halloween. This is, is either going to be Washington. I'd say if we're going by um, Mount Rushmore standards, this is either going to be Washington or Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, Halloween for me is my favorite slasher movie. Um, right, and that, that's the other one that's sitting there. It's like which one gets what? It's you know, it's these two movies vying for for Lincoln and Washington. Mm-hmm. Have you been smoking grass? Oh, thank you for the follow. I appreciate that. Um, In fact, I have not. Uh, so this movie, Halloween, um, for me, are two of his best films in terms of just the pacing of them and what he's able to put on the screen. I think Starman uh, sits up up there for me. Um, you know, there's a difference between... Darkness. Yeah, Army of Darkness definitely makes it onto Mount Rushmore. Army of Darkness is not John Carpenter. I thought you said it was. No. Oh, then I misheard something. Nope, that is is Sam Raimi. Um, Okay. Like uh, I said, I'm crap at remembering who. Prince Prince of of Darkness, Darkness, which is a very different movie. Um, I enjoy that one, but it doesn't hit the the same heights as, as some of these. Um, but it's definitely in my top probably three or four uh, Carpenter movies and probably top two. I love The Fog. I love Escape from New York. Uh, I, it's probably this and Halloween kind of vying for number one. Um, Halloween might get a slight edge only because it's a it's really effective does to good be able work. to do it, all of that. I'd say he does especially good work with Kurt Russell. Oh, he definitely does. But then again, who doesn't do good work with Kurt Russell? Uh, Sylvester Probably Stallone. Probably more than a... Eh, okay. Touche. But that's only because I want to make fun of Tango and Cash. Uh, it's really... It's really <laughs> all um, but yeah. It, look, if you haven't seen The Thing, it's worth watching. Uh, just be warned. Um, it is... Uh, don't eat while you're watching it. If you have a, a weak stomach, it is, you know, is, honestly, I didn't find, I didn't feel any, I, I've seen a lot worse movies as far as the, um, squeamish inducing gore goes on. Um, it's, it wasn't really all too bad to me. Well, part of it is because it's so crazy and so over the top and it's definitely like a weird alien creature, but it's still, it's a lot. And and I know people that wouldn't be able to handle that level of it. Um, yeah, and what it has. I, I guess it's oh, what's the trip to the the fear of the thing with the holes, with lots of holes in it. Yeah, no, I know what uh, you're talking about. Yeah, 
Like, um, I could see how that could get triggered during this movie, and that's not a thing that I that yeah, I deal with. It, it it is a movie that has uh, some imagery in it that can be off putting. But if you if that doesn't bother you, if you don't mind uh, a horror movie uh, and kind of just crazy makeup effects and and creature gore, um, I mean, because look, when you're when you're ranking gore on a scale of ten, this is like a ten or an eleven. It's just fantastic, uh, really really well done. But you got to be able to to put up with that stuff um, if you can and. You know, at the same time, deal with some of the nihilism in it and sort of the, like, I mean, these guys eventually figure out, like, the character of McCready eventually figures out they're not going to win. They're not going to defeat this thing. They just got to keep it from getting out. Like, they're not going to get out of it alive. Right, and he he doesn't shy away from telling the guys that. when Once once it gets to that point, Mm -hmm. he tells everybody, look, this is, because it's him, Nulls, and... um, Gary. Gary. Yeah. And there, he's basically yeah. like, we're not getting out of here, but we got to stop that thing from getting out of here too. And so, you know, that can be. And and for how they portrayed Nulls up to that point, mm-hmm. I, I was actually expecting a bit more freak out from Nulls, but I'm glad that they didn't make him freak out about it. He's like, okay, you know what? I'm not letting this thing win. If it's yeah. going to get me, if it's, if I'm going down, it's going with me. Absolutely. Is pretty much how he seemed to, Yep. Absolutely. Uh, well, Hey, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for coming on this week. It was, uh, it was a little bit of a last minute, uh, kind of had to call an audible, but you, you helped me out a ton by saying, by just coming out of the blue and saying, Hey, you know, I've never seen the thing. I was like, this is serendipity because earlier that day, uh, I had found out that I had to punt what was going to be this week's episode. And so we would have been doing like, regardless we would have been doing this but we i just kicked the timetable a little quicker and so i thank you for that but i also thank you for just being on uh coming back it's been a while since you've been on the show um yeah and that's just scheduling you know oh sure yep adult adult life is hard uh, i totally get adulting that. be hard sometimes you don't think it don't be like that it'd be like that but it do uh but no this has been a ton of fun uh, i'm really glad that you enjoyed it i kind of had a feeling that you would uh, it still just boggles my mind you hadn't seen this either. Um, Honestly, I was a bit boggled myself that I hadn't seen this, especially <laughs> watching it and finishing watching it. I'm like, how have I never seen this before? Well, we fixed that for you. And you know what? Well, maybe one of these weekends we'll have a, a John Carpenter festival and we'll just show you some oh, more of this stuff. Oh, that would be great. That would uh, be great. I mean, we've got, there's still, there's Christine. Start, um, okay, what, you're, what, you, what we're going to do for that is we're going to take and we're going to start with what you believe to be the bottom tier one and then go from there sure sure like well, it don't because it only goes uphill from, it, it only gets better from here absolutely absolutely well once again keith thank you so much for being on um this show it is a monday night as we're recording this but we typically uh i record sunday nights at 8 p.m eastern time and i live stream that at twitch.tv slash tv's travis so you can come hang out and be like phil rude fail um ace daniora hang out in the chat talk to me, yell, yell stuff at me about how I didn't mention they live, um, as one of John Carpenter's movies, but now I have, um, and, uh, definitely, um, hang out for that. That'll be great. Now coming up next week, I got a fun one. Audie Norman, uh, of let's watch Highlander. My co-host there is coming on as well as the name you hear quite often in the chat. Ace Tigress is going to be here because Ace has never seen T2000. 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 live action movie. Um, we're fixing that next that week. Sound you just heard is <laughs> my jaw hitting the floor. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go have to get stitches now. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to this because I adore this movie and I have a lot of personal uh, connection to it um, from being like the perfect age when it came out. So this is gonna be a fun conversation. That's gonna be coming up next week on the show talking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I got some other fun ones coming down the line uh, that are going to be great. Uh, as always, the show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays. You can get that at tvstravis.com or anywhere that you find uh, podcasts. If you could leave a rating and review, that does help uh, the show a lot. I also have a Kofi page, ko-fi uh, slash tvstravis. If you want to uh, buy me a cup of coffee, you can uh, you can do that there. Um, and there is merch, um, at store.streamelements.com slash TV's Travis. You can find t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads with, uh, with logos on it. I'm working on some new designs. I'm going to get some. have to get one of those mugs. Yeah. Uh, the mugs are pretty cool. I'm actually going to get, um, I haven't gotten it here yet, but I'm going to get one of the big, uh, big mouse pads, like the big kind of desktop sized ones or, or extra large. Um, I just think that'll be kind of a cool backdrop to have for like painting streams and whatnot. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you want to get some merchandise, you can do that there. Uh, as, as always, um, Keith, again, thank you for being here. Um, and, uh, and everybody come on back next week. Uh, we'd like to say to enjoy your movies and, uh, to remember that, uh, we're coming into spring. We're able to get outside a little bit more. So let's be excellent to each other. Okay. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>